Today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Miller's Law, a veteran-founded and run law firm. Miller's Law is giving back to the community that gives so much by making an incredible special offer to our listeners. For the next 30 days, Miller's Law is offering veterans and first responders a family will and power of attorney for only $299. Typically, a will in POA can cost over $2,000. That's a $1,700 savings. This offer is a meaningful way to say thank you for your service for all veterans and first responders. To take advantage of this amazing gift, don't wait. Go to millerslaw.com, M-I-L-L-A-R-S law.com, or email them at info at millerslaw.com. If you prefer to phone, you can call toll-free 1-888-855-5547. That's 1-888-855-5547. Don't delay. Do it today. Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. And we are rolling live with Elizabeth Marshall, live from Houston. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi, Mark. How are you? Good, good, good. Thanks for coming back to the show. I do appreciate it. It's good to see you again. Yeah, you too. It's uh, your, my brother from another mother up north. Yeah, you betcha. Well, it's not every day I get a supermodel entrepreneur on the show, so I'm pretty happy about that. You did a show recently, the Sonia Morton Firth Show. Uh, tell me a little bit about that experience with you, for you. Well, uh, just like we um, at Brothers in Arms approached you because we, we like what your podcast is about and what your message is about, um, we approached Sonia for the same reason. We just, we loved what her show was about and what her message was about. And um, and we really wanted to reach out to another to another female um, and she was just the perfect match. And uh, Mervyn, uh, you know, my business partner, he's, the very first time that we had a meeting with her, he's just like, she's just like you. And I was like, I know <laughs> I was like she really is. So, but it was a really good fit. Um, she, I think we're both just achievers and, uh, and we have the same goals and mindsets and about a lot of things. And, uh, so I ended up on, on her show talking about things that I don't talk about very often. In fact, I realized while I was talking to her that, um, I hadn't talked about these things to anybody really in a very long time. They're usually on a need to know basis, but I think I'm at a point where, I mean, I'm at a point where I don't have any shame about anything, like nothing. My life is what it is. I'm proud of the person I am. I, I, you know, I'm happy. Everything, everything led me to where I am. And, uh, and I just feel like it's almost a duty to tell people, um, you know, look what I went through and look where I am and, you know, wherever it is that you are, it's not the end, you know? Um, tell me about so. that sense of duty and, and what it was like when you heard yourself talking about your story with Sonia? You know, um, I think that that sense of duty is, is a part of the journey. Um, just like a lot of things are, uh, for a long time, um, I was really 
was really embarrassed, I think, about a lot of the stuff that had happened to me in the past, just because I think I subscribe, like like most people do, I, I'm sure, to, uh, you know, an idea of how life is supposed to go. Um, and my, you know, my story started veering off track pretty early. Um, and I think I always just carried a sense of shame about that for, well, for a long time I did like, you know, there's, there must be something wrong with me. Um, this is something to be embarrassed about. If people find out what will they think of you? Um, really just low vibration things, you know, uh, that held me back because it's just where I was at the time and that's okay. But I, I really feel like at this point I've, you know, it, it took me a while to look around and be like, wow, look, look what I am. Look what I've done. Like, this is pretty amazing. I think this would be amazing for people that had a storybook, you know, a storybook tale their whole life. Like I sort of feel like I have an obligation to maybe just talk, just be honest and talk about how I got here. And, and maybe that'll help another person who's, you know, who has everything in them to be, you know, a, a good person, a happy person, a contributing member of the world has so much to offer and give, but maybe doesn't think so because they think they're damaged goods on some level. It is amazing how powerful it is to share our story, Elizabeth. And whatever that's, I mean, we all have a story in us. We all have a book in us. If somebody cares to, to, to write, it's like, oh, my life isn't an interesting. It's like, I bet it is if you really look at it. And your story in particular, now that um, you sort of cracked open that bottle, the, the genie's out of the bottle and uh, you've opened Pandora's box. When I heard you talking about your story, um, and you did mention it when you were on the show last time, but really surface level. Um, but it piqued my interest at that moment. And then when I listened to the show you did with, with, with Sonia, I knew I had to have you back on here and awesome. it, was, it was time to share your voice. Yeah, I actually, you know, I, I remember, you know, we had some meetings before we ever recorded the show with me and Marvin and Sonia and her team and just talking about what we were going to do and what we were going to talk about and how this was going to go. And I really thought about, you know, do I want to do this? And I was like, yeah, I do. So I told her, you know, what I was intending to, you know, to talk about, and she loved it and was all on board. And I remember that morning when we got ready to record, I started thinking, what did I do? Like, <laughs> this is, you know, we can air your dirty laundry out for the world. Um, you know, this is not a good idea, but I was committed. So, of course, I went forward and, you know, uh, I don't know how I felt about it after we recorded the whole thing. Um, but I know, like, as soon as I listened to the final version of it, I was like, you know what, this came out better than I hoped. And I don't feel bad about anything. I think this is a growth step. Like this is a, you know, a, a lot of those, a lot of the things from, you know, the past in my story, they, they weren't my fault. So it's not, you know, it's not like I did anything That's wrong. Right. Um, you know, I just had some really hard things to deal with that were, you know, emotionally and psychologically that were, you know, a result of those things. And, um, I think I just felt bad about that for a long time, but I don't feel bad about those things anymore. It's a big, big step in the healing path, Elizabeth. When you are mm -hmm. able to, and it's the only way to let go of stigma and shame, is to say it out loud unabashedly. So when you share your story, it is healing for you, for yourself. It It is a demonstration of tremendous courage, and it does help other people, because that's what I do on the show all the time share people's stories, share my own story, and it's not easy. It's not easy. I had a suicide attempt in July, and uh, that wasn't easy to talk about. I almost didn't. But I realized that by, by 
being transparent by bringing people into my life that they can connect to that. And then they can realize, oh, okay, it's okay for me to ask for help. Oh, maybe I should be more concerned about those thoughts than, than, than what I was. And if it can happen to Mark, it can happen to anybody. Because here I am completely surrounded with uh, healing modalities. It's what I do. It's what I've been doing for years. And um, But even I have to be very, very vigilant because uh, it can bite you in the ass at any time. So when you share your story, it's going to connect with with people and it's going to give them courage to say their story and take their next healing step as well. And so I'm just so happy for you, Elizabeth, that, uh, that you've found the strength to unabashedly tell your story. And with that, um, I'd like to talk, start with Jamaica and how'd you end up there? Why'd you end up there? And, and let's, let's start, start with that. Um, so I suppose the more, the concise way to say it is, um, I, I mean, I, I come from a great family. I have great parents. I was raised well, you know, we didn't have a lot, but we had a great home. We always had what we needed and, you know, I had a great childhood. Um, uh, and when I was, I mean, I don't know, I'm pretty sure it was about fourth grade, you know, whatever age that is. Um, you know, all of this I recognize in hindsight. I didn't realize what was going on at the time, but I just started to have just problems. I, I, the thing I remember most clearly was coming home from school and just hysterically crying to my mother about how no one liked me. Everyone was talking about me. I mean, this was all, I had no, you know, proof of any of this. This wasn't actually going on, but it was in my head. It was very real. Like I, you know, and she would do everything she could to try to convince me that this was, you know, not true. This is ridiculous. Like you just, you know, you just had a bunch of friends over here, you know, you know, you're out playing with other kids all day. Like, this is not like, what are you talking about? You know, is there something Did somebody hurt you? And I'm like, no, but they don't like me. And they talk about me. And I mean, I was just paranoid and depressed and just, you know, and when you're a little kid, you don't have any way to deal with that. And, um, it kind of started to get worse through fifth grade. And by sixth grade, I started hanging around with some kids that my, my mother and father didn't really like too much. Um, started smoking pot, um, but just started to get really, um, oppositional. Um, and I don't remember a whole lot, but I do remember that just being really oppositional with my family, um, having problems with depression in particular. I remember crying a lot, like a lot, a lot, a lot, and not over anything that was tangible or real, just stuff that just my, my mind, you know, was just sad. And, um, when I was 13, I ended up in the hospital, uh, for a suicide attempt. I took a whole bottle of aspirin, um, and they had to pump my stomach and I mean, it was, it was really bad. And that scared my parents tremendously. Um, it would have scared me too. Uh, and I think that they didn't know what to do. They had been taking me to doctors, but I was resistant. I was just really resistant to everything. Like I was just, I was just having problems, you know? Um, and I think that they were just at a point where they didn't know what to do. Uh, and I don't know how they heard about this place, but they heard about some school in Jamaica and that was one location, this particular company, I suppose, had um, locations all over the world. I think they had a boys location in Western Samoa. They had a co-ed facility in Mexico. I mean, all always in third world countries where I suppose it was cheaper. I'm not sure why, but... Um, what was the so, name of that organization? 
I don't remember. Um, I, I have seen episodes of Dr. Phil and episodes of other shows like that as an adult where other children who went through those things are talking about being a survivor. I mean, they were horrible, evil places like um, that lied to people to get them to send their children there. Um, so, you know, I'm not the only person that's been victimized by this, by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, they, uh, when I was, I turned 14 in November and, uh, after Christmas, my dad told me that we were going to go on vacation. So he said, we were going to go to Jamaica, just me and him. And I was excited. And, you know, so we get to Montego Bay and get in a van and drive like two hours to the other side of the island. And, um, we get to, you know, what looks like a beach resort, you know, it's a white stucco building on the beach. I mean, it was lovely. And we go in and are in the lobby and, um, a bunch of women take me into this other room and tell me basically that I'm, I'm not leaving. And I'm, you know, what, you know, I'm, my dad's out there. We're here for vacation. They're like, no, you're not here for vacation. And I absolutely freaked out. Who wouldn't? I mean, that's. Did you feel betrayed? I'm sorry. Did you feel betrayed? Oh, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen my dad cry in his whole life uh, other than that one time because he had to walk out and just leave. And I could tell he was crying. Um, and I'm just screaming and going crazy. You know, just don't leave me here. Dad, what are you doing? Like, I don't want to stay here. Uh, and he just left. And I actually got taken there the nice way. Um, most of the girls that ended up there were kidnapped. Their parents paid people to kidnap them while they were sleeping, like in their bedroom, and take them there. It's unimaginable. It is unimaginable. Who does that? No matter how bad your kid is. That's just... So I got the nice treatment. My dad took me there. Um, But that's how I ended up there. Just emotional problems. You know, a suicide attempt very young. Um, They didn't like me smoking pot. Uh, They were just... They they were really worried. So did they fashion themselves as a rehab center of some sort? Or... Place for troubled children? I think it was like a behavior modification program. Mm. So what they were told, they were given brochures where that were just total lies, you know, that had, I don't know if they were stock photos or what, but of kids eating pizza on balconies and riding jet skis out in the ocean and sitting in group therapy with doctors where you worked on your problems and, you know, you uh, there was school there with teachers and it was all, you know... And it was nothing like that in real life, but that's what our parents were sold. So to be fair, our parents were victimized too. I don't think any of our parents would have sent us there if they knew what the reality was. Once your parents found out, like fast forward, uh, when you finally escaped that place, did they even believe the stories that you told them or did you even tell them? So every week, we would have, like, we had very scheduled, like, rigidly scheduled days. And every week on, I think it was Sunday, uh, we had an hour carved out of the schedule where we did letter writing, and that was, like, on the schedule. So we, I didn't speak to my parents for six months. Um, no phone calls. You had to, that was a privilege. You had to earn the privilege of talking to your family. Um, but I would write letters home, and I was totally honest. I'm just like, this is, like, why did you do this to me? Like, like take me home, please. Whatever I did, I won't do it again. Like just begging, like, you know, we don't have running water half the time. We don't have air conditioning. I, you know, it's filthy. You know, there's no doctors here. These are all like local teenagers probably making minimum wage. Like we're not getting real school. We're getting, I mean, it was just awful. It was a third, it was, it was a third world country. And, 
uh, the staff told our families, don't believe anything that they say. You know, these are bad kids. You sent them here because they're bad kids. They're lying. Don't believe them. So that's, and when I got home, yeah, of course I told them, but I never, I think the thing that really upset me the most is I never got an apology. It was never really implicitly stated, but I think it was never implicitly stated, but basically, you know, the vibe was if you hadn't have done X, Y, Z, this would never have happened. It was your own fault was the message. Yeah. Yeah. So you were there for a total of six months? 13 months. 13 months in total. And I went to a a, a sister's school, same company, uh, in Utah for six months. So I was gone for 19 months in my early teenage years, like just pulled out of school. For for that 19 months, did you see your parents at all? No. You had mentioned on Sonia's show um, some of the punishments that they would dish out. Yeah. Um, well, the school was run by Mormons, like, like really devout Mormons who, um, and this is not, this is not me bashing anybody. It's just, you know, talking about sure. the facts. Of the situation. Um, they, but they were very devout Mormons and, um, like any, you know, any religion they have, you know, they have beliefs about things. Um, they didn't believe in caffeine, so we were never given caffeine, but they also believed that, um, self-inflicted injury was not just, you know, trying to slash your wrists or do something violent and crazy, um, popping a pimple is self-inflicted injury in their opinion. Um, just stuff like that, just weird stuff like that. And the punishments that they would dish out, they, they had like a scale, like categories one, two, three, four, and five. So cat one stuff was little stuff. Like you didn't do what you're told or whatever. And cat five was serious stuff, but that included self-inflicted injury. And when I was there, my skin went berserk, like absolutely berserk. I had acne all over my body. Um, and it would bleed. It would, I mean, I couldn't smile. I couldn't talk without my face just, and somebody's mother um, came, I'd, I'd been there for several months and somebody's mother finally came up there, not mine, but somebody else's who knew my mother um, and saw me and went home and told my parents, have you seen what's going on with your, with your daughter? Like she needs to be taken to a doctor. Um, they never took us to the doctor. Um and they eventually did because I think my parents threw a fit and they wanted to put me on Accutane, but that's, that's a hardcore drug that you have to get labs for and stuff like that. And they were never going to do that. So I just had terrible skin. It left me with horrific scarring that I've since gotten evened out as an adult, like with lasers and stuff like that. But it scarred me. It scarred my entire body because no one ever took me to the doctor or got me any help. But my face would bleed all the time, and I had acne everywhere, and they would punish me all the time for cat five rule infractions, which is the worst rule infraction you can get, because they would, you know, you're picking at your face, and I'm not picking at my face. But just stuff like that. Like, you're just, it's like you're in a hole where everything that you do is wrong, and you're punished for, like, existing, is what it feels like when you're that age. Reminds me of my first marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But yeah. What, what did some of these punishments uh, look like? You had mentioned um, being forced to lay face down on a tile floor. They called that observation. So I don't really remember like what the lower category punishments were. They also had a thing called worksheets, which is where you would sit. So I guess for the lower infractions, I remember that. Yeah, those worksheets. Like you would sit in a room with a tape and a worksheet with questions on it. And you would have to listen to the tapes. And the tapes were about, like, you know, classic novels and 
just like, I guess they're educational, but it was just about like books and like stuff like that. And you'd have to listen to the tape and fill out the worksheet. And you had to listen because the worksheet wouldn't get filled out correctly if you didn't listen for specific details. And it was, but they only had so many tapes and so many worksheets. So after a while, if you're a bad kid, you just kind of memorize all the answers and just, you know, but uh, for the, for I think cat three through five, um, they put you in observation. And observation is being in a room, a tile on a tile floor. And we didn't have air conditioning, anything like that. I mean, most most of the rooms were filthy all the time, and they would just make you lay face down, um, and that's that was your punishment. And some girls were left in there for weeks. I mean, they'd let you up. They'd tell you when you could get up to eat, and then you'd have to go right back down. Um, it was really, really bad. I, I don't know. That what, is some um, Guantanamo Bay level torture. That is unbelievable. Yeah, and when you're when you're that age, like you know that this is bad. Like you know that this is really bad and shouldn't be happening to you. But I don't think you really realized how bad it was. Um, but it's just you know, for over a year, it was just every day was, um. You're just, you're, you're, you know, plus most of us were sent there because we had mental, you know, like mental health problems, you know, so we, a lot of girls there had eating disorders a lot and they would force them to eat. Um, a lot of girls like me had depression and, you know, things like that, that they were dealing with. And that's just exacerbated. Oh, lost you there, Elizabeth. I'll wait till the buffering's over yeah. here. So I lost you there for a moment. You're back now. It was, we had a buffer. Um, well, every day you're, you're living in just with fear and depression and just, it, it just felt like a net, I mean, and physical oppression too. Like, I don't want to sound too first, first world by saying this, but Jamaica is hot. I mean, it's a very, it's a tropical, you know, country and we didn't have air conditioning. We didn't have running water. We'd have to go to the beach and fill up buckets and pour them in the back of toilets to flush the toilets. We washed our clothes in buckets. There were no washing machines. I mean, we lived, um, you know, we lived in a way that none of us were used to. And not like it's the end of the world, but none of us were used to that. What did this do? Like, when, once you got out of this horrendous torture chamber, for lack of a better description, what was your relationship like with your parents when you got back? Not good. Did you ever forgive them for what they did? I have now. I mean, now that I'm grown up and have worked through a lot of things, you know, this and a couple other things too. But now we have a great relationship. I love my parents. They would never have done this if they'd have known. Um, they were victimized by this too. You know, it, they had, you know, they had a stretch of time where, um, you know, my mother's told me some things about just what this did to her and just how could I do this to my child, you know. Um, cause they eventually found out that everything I told them was true. And, um, did they apologize got, to you at that point? They've apologized. Yeah, yeah. They've apologized. Um, but they never apologized when I was a kid. Um, I just got home and was really angry. I think that's sort of understandable. I mean, I was already having problems with anxiety and depression before I left. And when I came back, you know, those were just tenfold worse than they were before because of all the trauma, you know. And I was just so angry. Like, how could you possibly do something like this? And and not just that. How could you possibly make it, like, make me feel like this was somehow my fault? This was your fault. And 
um, I mean, I was just really, really angry and, uh, I, you know, got right back into smoking pot and got right back into, I mean, I, you know, really, really went down the hole quick with drugs and alcohol and all that kind of stuff. Cause they put me, when I came back, they tried to put me in a private religious school that they couldn't afford at all because they, you know, they realized that this hadn't done what they had hoped it would do. And they thought this would do better. And I was just like, I cannot believe I mean, I was just angry. I got kicked out after one semester on purpose because I, I was like, I'm not going to go to your, you know, your damn school and I'm not going to do anything you say. It was just very much like, I'm not going to do anything that you say ever again. That was the attitude. Was there a moment in time where you had that, wait a second, this is bullshit. I'm worth more than this. Did you have that moment? No. I, like... You know, now that I'm older and have more emotional intelligence and, um, and you know, much better self-esteem and have worked through a lot of things, yeah, but no, back then, it, no, back then it just destroyed me. Like, I came back and they expected me to just go on with life like nothing had happened. It wasn't possible for me to do that. Like, I was already having problems socially before I left, like a lot of social anxiety in particular. And when I came back, everybody knew what had happened. All the other kids knew where I had been. And they never let me forget it. Um, so that, you know, being embarrassed and, you know, having to deal with all that on top of being angry, on top of having problems with depression and all that, and on top of being drugs, I mean, it was just a perfect storm of just, you know, I'm really surprised that I survived, to be honest with you. I mean, I was, I think on a subconscious level, I was hell-bent on just utter self-destruction. What was your turnaround point? What was the point where... You had a certain self-realization that, hey, I can do more and I can be more than this. Did, did, was there a moment or was there a person that influenced you? Uh, the prison system in Texas influenced me. <laughs> so that was not the only difficult thing I went through. Um, like I said, when I got out, um, I just started with the, you know, the drugs and the alcohol and just, I think, I think partly to just be, you know, F you to my parents, but partly because I just couldn't deal like with what, it, with what was going on, you know, mentally. And I'm an addict on top of it. So again, a perfect storm. Um, but when I was, in my early 20s, I started getting in trouble for drinking and driving, which is awful. I'm in no way defending that. It is horrible. No one should do it. Uh, the law should be hard on people who do it. So, you know, I take responsibility for all those things, and I don't – I'm really, really genuinely grateful I never hurt anybody. Um, but the first two DWIs I got in Texas – well, in, I think in the United States, the whole United States, the first two are misdemeanors, but the third one's a felony. And it should be that way. Um, but the first two, I got really close together and I was in, I was in a DWI court, which is a court. It's sort of experimental. I think they know a lot more about how much it helps or hurts or whatever now, but they, they put you, you know, if you're getting drug offenses or DWI offenses, um, into these courts where it's, it's, it's an attempt to help people instead of just, you know, locking them up and throwing away the key, which is noble. Um, but I just wasn't ready to be helped. And, um, For the first two, I was in front of a judge who was really everything that a judge should be. He went over and above the call of duty um, to try to help me. He he extended himself far more than he was required to, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, When all this stuff started getting wrapped up, I wrote him a letter thanking him for everything he did to try to help me. Um, But I just wasn't ready to stop. Um, I was still mad at the world, and um, 
I'd only been off of probation for the first two because I got them so close together that they just they just wrapped them up into one. But yeah. I'd only been on probation for that for about a month, and I caught a third one. A, a, a cop that lived in our neighborhood pulled me over in our driveway, um, which I was so mad about. Like, how dare you? But that was a god. <laughs> Really, it was a god thing. I, I mean, I but I got my ass handed to me. They put me in jail for a year and a half, so I was in prison in Texas for another year and a half. So another year and a half of misery and torture and lo- and being alone and um. So I've been through two stints of, you know, very traumatic isolation. If you had to rate it, what which which would you say was worse, Jamaica or prison? That's hard. Close, close call. Close. Prison should suck. Don't go if you don't <laughs> like it. I mean, you know, it's it, this isn't daycare, and you weren't just you know you weren't just dropped off here because you're innocent. You know, everybody says they're innocent. Most people aren't. So, um, but it was it was really bad. But to be fair, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me because you know I got in there because I was dying of alcoholism. I could not stop, and I knew that it was. I was at a point where I knew. Man, self, you've got a really serious problem and you need to stop. And I couldn't stop, which is really, really scary. So it saved my life. And, you know, um, I don't know about with anything else, but with alcohol, you know, especially if you're really, really um, did drinking you, a lot, uh, did you, your brain gets wet. Did you decide to get sober while you were in prison? I mean, you had no choice other than, uh, you know, unless there's some prison brew going around. But uh, did, did you decide that in prison? Or uh, was that that pivotal moment while you were in or after you got out? No, it was while I was in. Um, I'm not sure how long I'd been in there. I mean, I at the, I was going to say at the risk of sounding corny, but, you know, again, I don't have shame about anything. So um, I, I had a really serious God moment in there. Um, I remember I was laying down in my bed one day and was just, I mean, I was almost immobilized. Like it was white light, sen- overwhelming sense of peace, all that kind of stuff. And it just like kind of, it just paralyzed me and just some, nothing was really the same after that. Uh, it came out of nowhere. Um, I've never had it happen to me again, but, uh, I was just sort of overcome with this, this notion that life didn't have to be this way. This wasn't the end. This could be the beginning. And, uh, if God is for you, who is, who could be against you? And, um, you know, you have no choice but to be here, but you'll get out someday. So, why not start putting the pieces in place to rise from this when you get out? Um, and I don't know really where I got the sense that I could, you know, this, just this grit sense of this, you know, well, it doesn't, you know, none of this matters and you can do anything. I mean, that's a little bit not, I want to say naive, but it's not, I mean, it's, that's a tall order for everything I've been through, but I just really believed it. Like, you know what? Um, I, I can start a business. I can do, there's so many things I can do this, this damn it. This is not going to be the end. It's just not. When you got out, what was the first step that you took towards building your life back? So I was fortunate. Um, I got to live with my family. Um, they didn't, they were nice enough not to charge me rent. Uh, they were nice enough to fix up my really, really beat up car. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what were you driving? It was a Honda Civic that was barely hanging on. I mean, it was just, what year was it? Nice enough to get the body, you know, like the engine revamped and like the body straightened up. But it was it was a hunk, a hunk of junk. But I, I, you know, I went to AA. 
and all these other things while I was gone and just really, you know, made it, you know, started reading motivational books, started reading any positive material I could get my hands on because I, I, for some reason I knew enough to, to know that, you know, a lot of this is about mindset and attitude. And if I can, if I can figure out a way to change my mindset and attitude, I think that that's, I mean, it can take me far. Did you so have any I, favorite books? Sorry. Did you have any favorite books? Um, I'm trying to remember. I don't remember if there were any favorite ones. Zig Ziglar type stuff, mm-hmm. you know, you can and you will. Um, so, so things that are sort of like that. Um, but, uh, you know, AA did me a lot of good too. And, you know, I know people have their, their opinions about 12 step programs. Um, I, I'm a big fan. I kind of feel like whether you're an addict or not, they're good for anybody sure. because we're all, you know, human and all broken and those steps can apply to anybody. Like you don't have to be, I, you know, I say I'm lucky that I had to face, I had to, you know, come to a point of reckoning because if I didn't, I'd die from, from addiction. So I had to do it. Maybe, you know, in, in a weird converted sense, like maybe other people aren't so lucky, you know, they go their whole lives without really having to, having to have a moment of reckoning. And well, maybe I that think moment- that's what the whole hidden bottom thing is all about, you know, bottom? And you kind of got to hit that bottom and have that aha moment. And that was mine uh, five years ago that put me on this journey. It's like, oh my God, (laughs) I do have a problem and I've got to change and I don't have a choice but to change. Um, But it's a beautiful thing, really. It is. Like paradoxical, weird sense. It really is because you could go on with a life of mediocrity or a life of just silent resentment or just these quiet little things that never disrupt you too much. When you get disrupted, it's a catalyst for change. What was the first, um, so you're, you're reading these books, you're starting to put yourself together and maybe even getting hooked on the positivity, which is good. I had a similar experience when I started to to realize my own power. And what was the first act, the first thing that you did that uh, that that showed you is like, hey, look at me go? Well, um, just I think it started with little things like um, you know coming out and instead of being angry that I was you know, in my late twenties and where I was and just, Oh, look at this car I have to drive. It was totally different. It was a sense of gratitude. Like, look, you know, I just, I still have this mindset to this day. Like anytime something bad or, you know, not even just bad, but just maybe doesn't go my way, you know, happens to me. I immediately, my, my brain just immediately goes to, well, at least it isn't this. Like I just have this different perspective for looking at things like, um, you know, I was grateful that I had a place to live where I didn't have to pay rent. And I was grateful that I had something to drive. I didn't care if it looked like a hunk of junk, man, am I lucky, you know? And, but it's true. Like in the past, you know, the poor me stuff that I think goes along with addiction most of the time would have just been, man, this is so unfair. Nobody has better than me. And this, you know, just all the poor me stuff that just left me. And I think that's, that's one of the first things you have to do is get rid of. It's not saying that you don't have a right to, to feel a certain way about wherever it is that you are, but dwelling on self pity and what you don't have is a, it's toxic. That is a recipe for disaster. You can't suck and blow in the same time. You can't uh, be bitter and grateful at the same time, which is That's why right. practicing mindfulness with gratitude, the attitude of gratitude is so critical. It, uh, it's constructive thinking versus destructive. 
Right. Exactly. So again, like I said, you know, I, I realize for whatever reason, you know, I, I've always been a, a pretty smart person. And, um, like in school, when, before I, you know, got, um, like in elementary school, before I started having issues, I was in gifted everything. And teachers loved me. You know, I always had a lot of capacity for, for thought and reason had <laughs> just kind of left me for a long time when I, uh, when I started having issues, but, you know, when I started to get clear headed and sober and, you know, an attitude of gratitude, um, I was amazed at how easy, you know, at how, um, proficient I was at, um, uh, analyzing my next step, you know, analyzing where I was, where I needed to go, what I needed to do, where I needed to be. You know, I think I spent so long, you know, feeling bad about myself that once I got clear headed and on a, and on a, and on a, you know, a path of, um, on a positive path, I was amazed at how well things started to go. When did you (laughs) decide to get into modeling? Huh? When did you decide to get into, into modeling? As soon as I got out of jail, that was, that was my plan because, um, I had gone to college, never finished, um, partly because, uh, I was on the hook for paying for it myself, but also because I just didn't have the capacity as an addict to hang in there with it. But, um, being raised in Texas around a lot of, uh, self-starters, I knew that I can start a business doing anything that I'm good at. You know, all I need to do is ask for help, you know, and for people that know what they're talking about to fill in the gaps. And I mean, that's very much what I intended to do. And I was like, well, what can I do? And I'd done some modeling before all this, but just never hung on to it because I was too just unreliable. Um, I was, you know, I, I, uh, got on some networking sites, um, I told Sonia, you know, I spent the first half of my life, well, the first part of my life without internet. So I knew what the world was like without the internet. And I remember like when the internet came around thinking like, wow, look at all the opportunity. <laughs> like, And that just never left me. Like I was like, you know what? I'm pretty sure that I could fire up this modeling thing again with the internet. Like, you know, yeah, I live in Houston, which is a big city, but there's not a lot of those opportunities here. But I can connect with anybody from anywhere with the internet. So I did that. And there were, there were networking sites uh, where you could create a profile and, um, and just network with other photographers and models and industry people. Uh, and that's what I did. And I just, I, I think I accepted early on that um, I'm going to have to build my way up to the point where I want to be. But I started out doing trade for print stuff, which is basically both people work free in order to get, you know, material that everybody can use. And once I had a portfolio, I started to charge, um, and I worked my way up to, to uh, 100 bucks an hour, um, which was not, it didn't take me long to do that. That's not bad. Uh, I, uh, I'm sorry? I said, that's not bad. That's pretty good. Not bad. And I was managing to travel, too, which was amazing. People, I was just amazed at, you know, just putting some, some work into getting an initial portfolio built up uh, that was quality and was good. And people, people would fly me all over the place, all over the country to do commercial work, to do private stuff for their own. Uh, I don't mean like risque stuff, but just, you know, like, like private shoots for their own, uh, their own um, photographer portfolio. I mean, I just I got all sorts of different kinds of work and um you know, the intent was to do this and just stash away money because I really wanted to get into real estate investing. I knew that I couldn't do the modeling stuff forever, but I was still young enough and still, you know, still had, you know, some years in front of me to do that. So that was always the plan was to do that and just sock away money and work on my credit score and learn real estate investing. And that's exactly what I did. So you're, you've got uh, residential properties or commercial properties? 
So I, I'm in the process of selling off my very last property right now because with the housing market the way that it is, I just can't afford not to. I'm going to get too much for it. But I, um, I looked, I, I really wanted to do multifamily stuff. Um, that requires a lot more cash than I was able to save up, but I was able to save up quite a bit of money and, um, and really got my credit score in good shape, uh, maybe in a year or two. Um, and I was doing, I got into it, um, when you were still able to leverage here in Houston, I, I don't really know what the market's like right now or like what the process is right now. But when I was getting out of it, it was getting to the point where the word had gotten out that real estate in Texas was cheap. And this was a good place to invest. <laughs> so, um, you know, all the cash buyers started coming in. And if you had to, you know, leverage, you know, if you had to take out a mortgage or anything like that, you were just going to get outbid you know, by a cash buyer, which is unfortunate. But when I first started doing it and acquiring properties, that wasn't the case. I, somebody taught me how to leverage up and, and create cash flow by doing that. And that's, that's what I did. That's fantastic. How were you introduced to C- Brothers in Arms uh, CBD? How did that relationship uh, come about? So I, um, it was a couple of years ago, maybe two or three, maybe two years ago. Um, but I, I met them on Facebook or I'm sorry, on Instagram somehow somebody contacted, contacted somebody. I'm not sure who, I really don't remember like who got in touch with who, um, I think they found me somewhere and started following me, um, and offered to send me, um, some free samples. And I was like, yeah, sure. Who am I to say no to that? You know? And they did. And for some reason I, I just, something just clicked. And I was like, you know what? My dad's a Vietnam vet. I'm real patriotic. I love veterans. I love America. I love just, I I was raised around that community. Like I really, I'd really, really like to do something in that community. And, um, so that's, that's just how it started. And my husband, uh, I met my husband while I was doing the real estate investing. Um, so I'd been married for a few years at that point, but, um, yeah, that's, that's just how it started. So we gave them, you know, an investment to, to, to get everything off the ground. So what's your relationship with them now? Are you a part owner? Uh, I'm a partner. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've, Mervin does all the back of the house stuff. To be fair, he's the rock star in this <laughs> situation. He's amazing. He does, you know, he does a lot of our networking and he, and he, um, so our back of that Mervin's our back of the house guy and he's, he's a superstar. Um, but I do, you know, I talk to people like you, I talk to people like Sonia, um, and, uh, you know, we're still new and getting this all off the ground, but, um, you know, we want to start hosting events and, you know, and things like that, you know, sky's the limit. We have a lot of things, you know, that we're brainstorming about right now, uh, that we want to start doing, but we, you know, we, we said from the very beginning that we don't just, we're not in this just to make money. Like that's like far from it. Um, you know, all business has to turn a profit or they won't survive. Like, but that's not, that's not why we're here. That's not why we're doing this. Uh, if it, if this were about money, we wouldn't be in the CBD business. Like, um, the, there's just more profitable things that you could be doing, I suppose. Right. Is what I, but um, when I was, um, when I got out of jail and was, you know, getting sober and, you know, finding, you know, um, uh, psychiatric medication that worked for me, which I have, I take one thing. That's the great thing about CBD. I take one thing. I take one prescription. Uh, it's an old school thing uh, that they, that's been around since the fifties. They know how it works. They know that it's safe. Um, and instead of having to pile a lot of other stuff on top of that, which I've seen that more times than I can count, and I'm not judging anybody. You need what you need. Yeah, it's, it's no shame uh, in that. Um, but I just didn't want to be 
I didn't want to have to take, you know, a whole medicine cabinet worth of stuff every day if I didn't have to. And CBD amplified the benefits of this one thing I was taking so much that I, I mean, it just put everything into place. Um, you know, I use it, I don't use it alone. I use it as an enhancement to help, you know, the prescription medication that I take work better, but it, it just, it worked so well for me. Um, so it works at doing what, like w- what is the CBD oil actually doing for you, Elizabeth? Like w- what are the effects that, um, and the benefits that you're receiving from taking CBD oil? So, um, the one prescription that I take uh, really does a good job of just helping to kind of even out my nervous system, I suppose, is the best way to say it. Um, a lot of my issues with uh, depression and anxiety seem to have kind of evened out a little bit as I've gotten older. But I know I- I'm certain that I have some nervous system damage from all the trauma that I've been through. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the CBD just really calms everything down. I for anybody that, that kind of has like nervous system issues that are related to trauma, you kind of understand what I mean when I say that you just feel frazzled. Like you just feel like sometimes you, it's just you're crawling in your own skin. Like it's just, you know, you feel very dysregulated. This helps you to feel regulated. It just, it, it's like poor, you know, if you have like a prickly, like if you have a, if you have a live wire laying on the ground, that's just kind of, you know, flat, you know, thrashing around and it's full of electricity. It's like dousing it with water. Like it, it just, it stops all of that, that scary electrical energy. Is that, is that a good way to, it does. No, it makes perfect sense. So that's what it does for me. Um, I know plenty of people that can take it by itself and it makes all the difference that they need. So CBD can be by itself, um, can be all somebody needs. Um, other times people, you know, people need a prescription medication or several or, you know, whatever it is that they need, but CBD can't hurt you. It, it can't it, always consult with your doctor. You know, I definitely want to put that disclaimer out there, you know, always consult with your doctor, but there's no, it's not possible to overdose on CBD. And it doesn't get you high. You know, people don't under, some people don't understand that, that CBD oil doesn't get you high. No, it doesn't get you high. And if you're worried about drug tests, broad spectrum and, and CBD isolate uh, will not show up on drug tests. Um, it, no, it doesn't get you high. It just, it, it just calms you down. Like everything just works in symphony better. Instead of being, you know, instead of going through your day where, I guess I can only speak for myself, but instead of going through my day where everything's going fine and then I'm having an issue where I'm real anxious and I just feel kind of buzzy. Like I just, I feel kind of like a live wire. It just smooths that out. Like you're just, it's easier to recover. You know, if you ever, if you ever get real amped up, I used to have issues where I'd get real amped up and have a real hard time bringing myself back down just by myself it makes that transition so much easier it just smooths everything out it sounds like in this time that uh, where so many people are suffering from stress and anxiety covid related that cbd oil would be a real good relief for uh, for anybody really it, it, it's not possible to overdose on it. It can't hurt you. You have nothing to lose. I mean, I'm not aware, yeah, again, consult with your doctor, but I'm not aware of, of, of any situation where you shouldn't take it, like where it's going to interact with something or cause something to happen to you that's deadly or really, really 
um, you know, not desirable. I, I'm not aware of that at all. It's, it's, it's completely natural. It can't do anything but help you from anything I've ever seen or heard about. Myself as well. I mean, our bodies are built for it. We have a cannabinoid system. Uh, yeah. We have re- cannabinoid receptors to, and we don't have alcohol receptors, <laughs> you know, but we do have cannabinoid receptors. It's, it's not a poison. It's, uh, it is nothing but good for you. But yeah. now, what is the scope of uh, Brothers in Arms CBD? Like, where can you ship to? You know what? I uh, I would have to get with Mervin to give you specifics on that. It changes. Uh, I'm pretty sure that we can we can ship it anywhere. I think there's a few states in America where it's not legal, but in the vast majority of them, it is legal. You always want to you always want to make sure that it's legal uh, where you live. Um, but as far as I'm as far as I know, it's legal just about everywhere. All right, so you can ship to Canada. Can you ship to the UK? We can, yeah. All right, because I have uh, listeners in the UK that are struggling to to get CBD products. So really? for my UK friends, brothers, brothers in arms, here you go. BNA.co. BNA, BNA.co? Yep, BNACBD.co, sorry. There you go. Well, Elizabeth, I think we're about there. I... Uh, I'm really appreciative of you coming on and sharing your very interesting and uh, amazing story, really. And uh, just thank you for all the work that you're doing within the veteran uh, first first responder community. Likewise, you you know, I just love that you've set up this podcast. It's really it's neat. I think it's needed more than ever right now. Well, thank you. It's, uh, it's, it's growing and every little bit helps. So uh, thank you for being on the show and please stay on the line. Okay. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. Now I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow. And if there's an option there for rating, please do so. And this is why. Every time you click like, leave a rating, leave a comment, what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast. The help that you can't find doesn't help at all. So help other people find this so that they can help themselves. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And as always, share, share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring.